Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. Today is Friday, June 11th, and joining me on this Friday is Luke Boggs. Luke, it's been a minute. How are you doing? Uh, happy birthday to me, Kyle. Um, I guess my birthday. So it's I'm your doing, birthday today? It's my birthday today. You didn't tell me this before we started recording? No, I wanted your genuine reaction to not knowing. <laughs> well, happy birthday. You must Thank not you. put your birthday on Facebook. because I. You know, it's on Facebook. I just... Uh, I don't pay attention to Facebook very much. Uh, so I don't this is my, my annual check-in of having to just like all the people that wished me a happy birthday, well, which I'm very grateful for. Thank you. People I know well and don't. <laughs> well, happy birthday to you. My birthday present to you today is going to be us recording again for the first time in a while. Um, so on today's podcast, we are going to check in on the latest developments on the 2022 U.S. Senate race where... Republicans will try to knock off Democratic incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock. Uh, That is a race that has been really slow to develop, um, but we did start to get some news in that race. Georgia Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black, he has formally announced, he announced a week ago that he would enter that race to challenge Senator Warnock. We're also going to talk about House Speaker David Ralston considering a bid, which I find surprising. Uh, We'll talk about why that's surprising. And then sort of the main thing people are waiting on with this is whether or not uh, former Georgia running back Herschel Walker, whether or not he is going to jump into this race. Uh, Former President Trump has encouraged him to do so, but Herschel was missing from the Republican convention last weekend, and it's really not clear that he wants to do this. So, So we'll talk about that too. And then for our second topic today, we are going to discuss this rash of protests and demonstrations happening at school board meetings in places across Metro Atlanta uh, related to the teaching of critical race theory in the classroom. Um, This is a subject that both Governor Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr have commented on. Two counties in the metro area, Cherokee and Cobb, have banned the teaching of critical race theory in classrooms. But I think the big question is, is this even happening anywhere? Or is this another one of these uh, conservative cause celebs that uh, get played on Tucker Carlson, but but maybe aren't that impactful to people's everyday lives? And then finally, we'll wrap up this week with an update on the Atlanta mayor's race. We don't spend a lot of time talking about Atlanta on this show, but there is some really significant news in the mayor's race, and that is that former Mayor Kasim Reed is making a comeback bid for his old job. Uh, We're recording on Friday, and on Thursday evening, he announced that he would be running for that seat again. He did it at a fundraiser that doubled as a birthday party for him at a mansion in Atlanta. Um, So we're going to talk about whether or not he could actually win this seat again, and what his entrance means for the other people in this race, and uh, how the issue of violent crime and homicides in Atlanta, which has led the headlines recently, um, how that issue is going to play out in this race. But before we get started today, I want to give a big thanks to Eric Rangus and from Georgia Magazine. This is the magazine for University of Georgia alumni. He profiled Peach Pod as a part of an article about several podcasts run by UGA alumni. These include the Armchair Expert podcast that Dex Shepard hosts with UGA alumni Monica Padman. We're also in here with like a New York Times bestselling author. We're in here with Aaron Murray and Drew Butler. Aaron Murray was my quarterback when I was in school at UGA. He now hosts the Punt and Pass podcast with Drew Butler. There's a podcast called That Sounds Fun hosted by New York Times bestselling author Annie Downs. 
uh, Luke, then they included us too, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, it is great to be uh, recognized among such other high caliber uh, podcasts. And so I, I was really excited to uh, have that opportunity. I appreciate Georgia Magazine for highlighting us and uh, doing such a nice profile uh, on on this podcast. And you know, it's a, it's a fun project. And so I hope uh, somebody out there is here because of uh, seeing that article. So if you are, welcome. <laughs> hope you hope you enjoy our show and think we're just as good as Aaron Murray. <laughs> and thanks to Eric Rangus who who wrote up that profile. We had a great conversation with him um, a little while ago, talking about some of the trends in Georgia politics that we've been talking about on this show for a long time. And lucky for us, all that analysis continues to hold up. Although maybe that's not the best for either the future of our state society. or uh, <laughs> society or progressive politics. Um, not exactly winning there in this state all the time. But uh, but thanks again to Georgia Magazine. All right, Luke, so let's start out with uh, an update on the U.S. Senate race here. Really, the only kind of hard news that we have uh, to discuss today is Gary Black's announcement that he would enter this race against Senator Warnock. He is Georgia's agriculture commissioner, and he has been agriculture agriculture commissioner for a couple of terms now. But he also, prior to becoming commissioner, had a long history working in agribusiness in the state. And so that suggests that he has a large network of people who he has worked with, who are familiar with him um, across rural parts of our state, that he could consolidate that support and be a a real contender in this primary, even against a Trump-backed candidate like potential candidate Herschel Walker, if he was to jump in there. Uh, Gary Black talked to the AJC about entering this race, and I think what he said in this interview really, I think, holds pretty well against what we sort of predicted about his candidacy and how he would approach it when the rumors that he would enter this race started to circulate. You know, he did say that he would tout accomplishments from former President Trump as Republican accomplishments and that he would love to have the support of the former president, but that he was in the race, even if somebody else like Herschel Walker was to enter with Trump's support. Um, and to me, he at least strikes me as somebody who has developed deep connections with a lot of power players in Republican politics, particularly outside of Metro Atlanta. Um, and that he, I think, would fill a lane closer to that filled by former Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle or other people who have had strong connections to the Republican establishment, as opposed to running sort of a grassroots first fire up the base type campaign. Um, Luke, now that he has formally announced, any thoughts on his entry into this race and, and what you think of his chances in a Republican primary? I think it's difficult to tell since Herschel Walker is still <laughs> hanging out over all the more Trump-aligned candidates because it's pretty difficult to argue that you are the, the Trump candidate when Trump is likely to endorse Herschel Walker if he actually runs. And so a lot of those folks have been holding back. And I think Gary Black or someone like him is a likely model for a viable non-super Trumpy candidate in Georgia because he has all of those really deep connections. He has a pretty solid, unquestionable conservative record. And I mean, just a lot of people know him and like him. And that traditionally has gone far in races uh, like this. I feel like it's a strange situation because 
while it is true, like I said, a lot of people know Gary Black, a lot of people like Gary Black. He's he's one of the most popular of the statewide electeds that aren't governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, you know, the un-high-profile positions. Pretty much everyone I know who's a Republican operative that goes to all the party conventions and stuff, they're like, oh, yeah, I like Gary Black. He's a guy, he's a good guy. Um, and so he doesn't seem to have a ton of enemies, and, uh, and he seems to be liked by everyone, and that usually helps a lot in politics. But, like, I would never think, you know, four years ago, eight years ago, that Gary Black would be someone pursuing a position like this with a real chance to win because you would think someone like Jeff Duncan someone like Brian Kemp would be doing it, not one of these lower tier statewides. And I think the reason why he is running, uh, besides whatever personal reasons he has for wanting to be a senator, uh, is just because of this weird window that, you know, Trump has created where some of the more high profile politicians don't know how to navigate the requirements of being a Trumpy Republican and don't want to put themselves out there. I feel like Buggy Carter is probably a great example of this, a current congressman from my uh, home area of the state. And he has really set his running or not on if Herschel gets in. And in, in previous cycles, he was just going in and start running and raising a bunch of money and you know trying to fight this thing out. But in Republican primaries, Trump's endorsement has been pretty determinative in states like Georgia. And so a lot of these people who would be your obvious, oh yeah, of course they'd run for Senate. They're just not doing it because Trump and what he will do in the race just locks the whole thing up. And so it creates a window for the Gary Blacks of the world, which I'm sure he appreciates. The other name to throw in the mix here, particularly relevant to Gary Black is House Speaker David Ralston. He was interviewed on Political Rewind recently and he described himself as seriously considering a bid for the U.S. Senate. Um, I think the reaction that both you and I have immediately, Luke, is why in the world would he want to do it? He is probably on most days the most powerful person in Georgia politics. Um, But he did describe himself as somebody who was considering a legislative challenge. He seems to like getting into the weeds on legislating. And he said that he was alarmed at the trend of things in the U.S. Senate. I think both in how they make laws. You know, the Senate is long described as the this premier deliberative body, and that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. But obviously, as a conservative, I think he would describe himself as somebody who's alarmed about the trends policy is taking when the Senate is run by Democrats. And of course, if House Speaker David Ralston becomes U.S. Senator Ralston, its chances are pretty decent that Republicans have taken control of that chamber back. Um, Luke, first, I want to ask you what you think generally about a David Ralston bid. Do you think he he describes himself as serious, but do you think he's actually serious, serious? And if he is serious, what do you think about his chances in a Republican primary? Well, to start on that serious question, I don't David Ralston rarely throws out things that he you know, on a lark, <laughs> he tends to be pretty deliberate in his speech, both literally and, you know, subjectively of just what he chooses to talk about and what he uh, pursues. And I mean, he's not always right about what's going to happen or, you know, which direction he wants the house to go or anything, but he, he usually doesn't just, you know, shoot off on random things like this, especially not something as big as a Senate run. And I think 
his intentions are probably good and genuine because the things that he would like to see the Senate do are quite clearly aligned with what he tries to have the House do most of the time. Uh, and so I, I, I'm not, I'm surprised that he is even considering it because as you said at the top of this, he is basically the most powerful man in Georgia most days in politics. And this would just be a downgrade of a job because, you know, no, no offense to <laughs> House Speaker Ralston, but you're not a young man. And so, you know, he would not, he would not be in the Senate for very long. And the way that you become very influential and powerful in the Senate is by being there forever. Uh, and he just, wouldn't be there that long probably if he if he did win and so considering how long it took him to build up his capital in the house and to become the house speaker of the state of georgia going to the bottom of the pole of seniority again uh i just i don't know why that would be appealing except in the way that he frames it as a challenge and i could see that be a reason why he wants to do it um that being said i think he faces the same problem that Gary Black faces, that anyone jumping into this Republican primary faces, which is like, what is Trump going to do? What is Herschel Walker going to do? I think Ralston, despite all these nice things that we said about Gary Black that are true, and the fact that Ralston actually has a lot of enemies in comparison, uh, I think he would be a much stronger candidate. He'd be a much stronger fundraiser. And he also is, in a strange way, embodies a lot of the things that Kemp sold Kelly Loeffler's embodying since Ralston has taken a more moderate track on some of the social issues and how he talks now what he lets the house do and which bills he brings up he has not done that but uh, on a lot of issues he is what the Atlanta business community would want Republicans to be focusing on and so in, in that way I would see him as being someone that the suburbs would not feel as uncomfortable with as they would with a more Trump aligned candidate and so that's a pretty powerful selling point in a general election. But I think Ralston would have to change his tact and tone to be successful in a, in a primary if there is a serious Trump-aligned, Trumpy candidate. Because as we saw in 2018 and in 2020, that the, the Republican Party and its candidates and its voters have really seemed to shift more towards the, the intense Trump lie filled exaggeration insane campaigning which frankly doesn't fit ralston very well he tries to put on that hat every once in a while and it, it doesn't fit him very well and I, I don't think republican primary voters that want that would see it in him and so i i would see him as being quite vulnerable in that race and i mean frankly that's that's the thing that surprises me the most about this bid uh because while i am you know, surprised, you know, if, you know, someone came on from on high and said, hey, Dave Grossman, do you want to be a U.S. senator? And he could just magically become one. Like, I don't know why he would say yes to that even. But when you add the element of like having to run in what would probably be a very contested, nasty primary, I just don't see why he wants to do that because I don't think it's going to be easy for him. Um, and so the, it, it's just an interesting situation for all those reasons. My question, Luke, is, is there only room for one of them in this race for if, if either of them want to be successful between Gary Black and, and David Ralston, um, because I think on, on Ralston's account, you do have the fact that he wields a lot more power. And I think his connections to the extent that they run deeply across the state, he is in part responsible for building up the house majority that Republicans have 
secured since 2010 when he became speaker. Um, and so he's got a lot of connections across the state from helping Republican lawmakers get elected from you know nearly every corner of the state and from all of the places where he would want to draw votes in a Republican primary. But as you mentioned, he does have a little bit more baggage. There are conservatives who do not like him, and he has had, frankly, weak and embarrassing challenges to his leadership. But there is this contingent in the party that does not like him. Um, there is the AJC investigation that looked into how David Ralston used his legislative authority and his legislative responsibilities to delay court cases where he was representing a client. Um, some of these clients were uh, accused of doing um, pretty terrible things. And um, I think some of the criticism of his using his legislative authority to delay those court dates has also been criticism of him helping his clients avoid justice. That is a negative story that's going to follow him. Um, and in some ways, he is more polarizing to the base, the conservative base, than Gary Black is. Of course, Gary Black, I mean, from everything that, that I've heard, I, I've never seen where there's a polarizing element of him with the Republican base or a group of Republicans that don't like him. But to be frank, he is in a much less high-profile position. He wields much less power around the state. And agriculture, it is an important industry in Georgia, but it is sort of a, a niche issue and a niche community to be a really, to be a rock star in. Um, and so I, you know, I think that that's, you're going to have those things that have to balance out. But to me, at least I think that there's really only one seat at the table for a non-Trump Republican in this Republican primary. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think the things that would make Gary Black a good candidate for the Republican establishment, the non-Trumpers, and even just like the, the Trump-averse, uh, you know, that, that those really go away when, if Ralston gets into this race. And I think Gary Black's logic for, for being in the race doesn't make as much sense because one of the other reasons why people have touted Gary Black as a potential good candidate for this race in the general is because of his agricultural connections. And I mean, there's a theory, I think most prominently pushed by Eric Erickson, that there's all these black farmers in South Georgia who love Republicans for some reason, or love, you know, Sonny Perdue as agricultural commissioner. And so they're going to vote for the Republicans and uh, push uh, Purdue over the top. And I think Gary Black kind of fits into that theory, but, you know, in a way that maybe, you know, question mark, it's untested that it would be true that he would actually be able to pull that element of, of that idea, that electoral coalition off. And, and Ralston would not be able to do that, but that is literally the only advantage I think Gary Black has over, uh, Ralston in either a primary or general is that one, theory of the case and on every other level whether it's fundraising or connections or you know political power political profile campaigning like Ralston seems to be the stronger choice in that but I, I really don't think either of them would be my favorite on a one-on-one -on -one with a Trump aligned candidate except maybe Herschel Walker, which we can get into in a, in a, a minute there. Uh, but that, I think I think you're right that there's really only room for one of them to be successful and that, if anything, I think the they would end up just completely splitting the establishment vote or you have a situation where 
you know, Rosting is dramatically outperforming Gary Black, but the, you know, five, six, eight percent Gary Black gets, uh, or maybe I'm not being too kind, maybe 14% he gets really, really hurts Rosting and takes it, you know, takes him down below the threshold that he needs to be. Um, but I think if they're both in there, that does increase the chances of having a, a runoff uh, in that race. So, it, you know, it really can go in a, a bunch of different directions. But all in all, I think the only way that a Trump candidate is going to be defeated is if the whole rest of the party unites around one other person, which I, I could see Ralston being that person. Um, but if, if there's multiple Republican establishment candidates in there, I, I think it's going to be a lot harder. So this assumes that Trump is still wielding a lot of power in the Georgia Republican Party and among Republican primary voters. At some point, though, I think it's actually worth questioning that assumption. When you look at the governor's race, uh, Brian Kemp has one lowly challenger in Vernon Jones, who is the former Democratic CEO of DeKalb County. Uh, the guy is basically a clown. And I think as of now, I would say has maybe zero chance of really making this a race against Governor Kemp. Um, Trump, you know, to date has not been able to lure somebody more powerful into that race against Governor Kemp. And here in the Senate race, you know, I think there is an assumption that at least at the start, Herschel Walker could be a compelling Republican candidate, both as a, a well-known UGA football star, as a black Republican, and as somebody who would enter this race with Trump's support from day one. But it's not clear that Herschel Walker wants to do it. He skipped the Republican state convention last weekend which would have been an opportunity for him to demonstrate the viability of his candidacy and probably demonstrate that he could get a much warmer reception from that crowd than even Governor Kemp could. You know, Governor Kemp got booed at that conference last weekend. But, like, he's nowhere to be found. And, you know, as far as I know, I don't know if he's left Texas to even come to Georgia. You know, he's lived there for, I think, part of his adult life or most of his adult life it's not clear that he's sending any signals that he actually wants to do this. And so that I think maybe raises the question of, of questioning this assumption that Trump is going to weigh heavily in this primary, or if he'll do, if he'll play the role somewhat that he did in 2018, backing Brian Kemp over Casey Cagle when Kemp, you know, started to have momentum in that runoff um, in that, in that Republican primary for the governor's race in 2018. Yeah. So what I would, where I would start there is I, I, I distinguish this a little bit between Trump and Trumpist energy, right? So I think Brian Kemp had Trumpist energy, right? He was running a very Trump friendly campaign and the issues that he was talking about and how he talked about them and what he chose to focus that race on and as you said, Trump kind of just like caught wind, noticed that like, oh, this guy's probably going to win or I could push him over the top and put himself in there. And I think that is the most likely scenario 
for this Georgia race is that some, you know, this, this field will develop, other people will get in and there will eventually be someone who's clearly the successful Trumpy person because there has been a lot of not bad knockoffs. And I, I think that person will gain steam and, and start to be polling well and to be getting folks attention. I am skeptical of Walker's position of being that person for a couple of reasons. Uh, though it, it's hard to tell exactly how it will go because my assumptions with Herschel Walker, if he does get in the race, is that he is not going to run the traditional campaign where he goes to all of the stops like the GOP state convention. I actually don't think it's as big of a deal as you do that he can't go with that because... Like, why would he? He's Herschel Walker. Like, literally everyone in the state of Georgia knows who he is. So, like, he doesn't have to do those things in the same way that Trump didn't have to do those things. He can just say, I'm Herschel Walker, and I'm going to some place, and people will go to him. And he has that star power, and so he he should use it. And, I mean, it, it, some people have been very, very successful in a positive way in doing that. I feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger is an example of someone who just knew how to attract people and use his star power and didn't have to do the traditional things uh, as, as much, whereas I, I, Herschel Walker could do that. I just am skeptical of his ability to do it because he just hasn't proven himself to be as able of a communicator or as someone who has taken it as seriously because Arnold Schwarzenegger took it incredibly seriously and worked very hard building his campaign, uh, whereas Walker has not, you know, gone on that level just yet. And, and so I would not be surprised if he does run that we would constantly be like, well, I'm surprised Herschel didn't go that I'm surprised, you know, Oh, this was a, you know, interesting event that he did because he's just not going to do it the traditional way because, you know, the people supporting that candidacy aren't the people that would encourage him to do those things, I, I would think. Uh, but even if he does get in, I really do expect that there will be someone who takes up the Trump mantle and argues that those positions and that ideology effectively, just because the, the bench for those kinds of people is pretty deep in the state. And I think that the opportunity is definitely there because even if Trump himself is not determinative, you know, Herschel gets in, Trump immediately endorses him. I would not be surprised if that candidacy just burns out. And then there's someone else in the wake of that who is running an actual real campaign and messaging on those issues because far more important than Trump I, is the electorate. And I think that the things that Trump says and the ways that he says them is he he feeds off of what is already there in the electorate. And so if someone else is able to pick up on that, replicate that in some way, then I think those voters are there and they can find their support. All right, let's move on here to our second topic for today. So Luke, I have seen all across Twitter these videos from school board meetings where a horde of angry parents shows up at a school board meeting to demand that their schools stop teaching critical race theory. And I feel like we've seen this play before. I think we've seen this with going back to the evolution and creationism debate in schools. Uh, that was a debate that was happening when, when I was in high school. Um, we've seen that with Common Core, this longstanding conservative obsession with getting rid of uh, Obama's Common Core standards. We've seen this most recently with conservative obsession with um, transgender students and sports. Um, 
And so I was, you know, kind of wondering about this, whether or not this is another one of these orchestrated conservative uh, cause celebs that have put a bunch of these parents in front of school board members to yell at them about something that probably isn't even really happening in their schools. And and that seems to be the case. Um, there's there's two districts in the metro Atlanta area, Cherokee County, where I graduated from high school, Etowah High School, um, and Cobb County uh, have both banned the teaching of critical race theory in classrooms in their districts. And I found it notable as I was trying to figure out, you know, what this really was. In the Cherokee County example, the AJC reported that there was this meeting to plan this tsunami strategy of inundating the Cherokee County School Board with demands that they ban critical race theory in the classroom. And one of the pieces of advice they gave to parents who would be testifying at these hearings uh, was that they should be sure to record video of every parent who speaks just in case Tucker Carlson wants to put you on air. And that to me was kind of the, the light bulb moment that this does seem to be this orchestrated subject of outrage for conservatives who spend a lot of time watching Tucker Carlson and in a way to feed red meat to the conservative base. And Luke, to be quite honest, I would be surprised that there is a sudden burst of interest among a lot of parents all at the same time in curriculum surrounding race. And when you read the reporting about these incidents at school board meetings and what school boards are saying about how race is taught in schools, it doesn't appear that there is any concretely defined critical race theory curriculum that is evident in all of these things, all of these different things that students are taught. And instead, I think what some people are suggesting is that the ideas, sort of the principles behind critical race theory, the idea that race has played an important role in institutional structures in our society, in our public schools, in our housing, in economic opportunity in this country, that some of those principles and some of those ideas may have been absorbed by individual teachers, and they may talk about race in the classroom, having been informed by those ideas, which to me seems very sensible and is a way to acknowledge and understand what is happening in the real world and prepare your students to encounter that and and try to improve the world in that way. But there is not this like, you know, it's, you know, Common Core was like a concrete thing that states could adopt or not adopt. This seems to be different. So I think we'll talk about it sort of in a limited fashion as it relates to education. But the other thing that this seems deliberately designed to do is to motivate conservative-based voters to get them outraged about something, frankly, because it's hard to be all that outraged about Joe Biden, um, to get them outraged about something and keep them engaged politically. And this is something that gets laundered through the conservative media ecosystem. How impactful on politics do you think that this push around critical race theory is going to be? I mean, my my gut on this is that this is just something that most voters do not care about because it's not something that is real. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you know, critical race theory is a theory, but it's very amorphous. Like, it is not a concrete curriculum 
that someone is shopping around and asking schools to um, take up. At least in my, you know, from what I know, I'm, I'm very sorry if someone has made a critical race theory curriculum and, you know, I have not known about it. I well, apologize. There is the, the, the 1619 Project has produced some materials for, for teaching in the classroom. But in general, I think it's also helpful to know that critical race theory is a broad description of an academic discipline of which there are tons of researchers at universities that are doing projects on all kinds of different things. So like in a, in one particular school, it, it basically means nothing. Right. And, and so that, and that I think is really important because the common core conversation was a real concrete one that had concrete consequences that pretty much every parent could notice because I remember hearing a lot during those days about parents being frustrated with that curriculum because it was a lot harder for them to help their kids just because the way and it was a strange way of approaching subjects in comparison to how it had been done before and so I have not been seeing those similar stories of people you know hearing things from their kids about critical race theory being taught and so on that front i just think a lot of voters don't really understand what this is talking about and don't understand why people are upset but it really it follows in line with a conservative strategy that they use when they're having trouble around an issue because i think the republicans accurately believe that they have a problem on racial issues in the sense that they are they they're concerned that the, there's a perception that the party is racist and that that hurts them in the suburbs. I think they're correct about that. And so what they typically do when they're in a negative situation like this is that they manufacture outrage about something that's not real and they hope people don't look into the details and they just want to see a bunch of people mad or they want to see, you know, Lindsey Graham screaming on TV and they're hoping that people that just aren't really paying attention, they see Lindsey Graham mad and blaming Democrats for something and they just assume like, well, he wouldn't get mad over nothing. All these parents wouldn't show up to this county, you know, school board meeting for nothing. So there must be something going on here when there isn't and so i mean it's just it's astroturfing it's it's manufacturing outrage and trying to uh you know really get people whipped out up about something that doesn't really exist and i i think that is the thing that makes it not as viable as the tea party movement since it was actually based in something real as in like you know democrats were spending money the debt was being increased these are real things there are metrics you can see you know there are programs being passed and, and this just isn't happening and so that that makes it a lot harder i think for it to be a long-term sustain you know sustainable issue where like brian kemp is going to be on the stump talking about this and this be the heart of his campaign and it actually sway a lot of people because he might use it and that might be might be a big part of his cancel culture campaign, but I don't see it being the thing that makes the suburbs suddenly come back to the Republican Party. And that that is the thing that like really surprises me about this push because there seems to be this mentality among a lot of Republicans that the suburbs are Republican. Even though they haven't voted Republican or two or three elections, they are Republican. They will come back to the Republican Party as a law of nature, and that the only thing that really matters is keeping the base at a frenetic energy to get all of these low propensity 
Trump voters to come out again for them. And with that math equation, you can win. But the thing that surprises me so much about this approach from them is that it, this push bringing these issues up, talking about race in the way that the Republican Party talks about it is one of the key things that has pushed suburban voters away from them. And so they're actually tripling, quadrupling down on something that is not helpful to them. And that is what confuses me about this as a political strategy. Taking the actual ramifications on the education system completely out of it, like that's the thing that is so confusing to me is that I think this is a loser for them long-term, but they really seem to think it's a winner for some reason. I actually meant to ask you this in the first topic, but maybe it fits better here. Um, We are entering this period in politics nationally in sort of the broad sense of how people feel about politics, where the new democratic president, he's confronted a crisis early in his administration. He's passed big legislation to address that crisis He has an entire additional agenda that he wants to get to, but that agenda and and his aspirations are running against the realities of congressional gridlock and the filibuster and a lot of things that we can get into another day. But we are headed for the summer where Congress tends to go on recess. They tend to go back to their home districts. And in the first version of this that I think is worth considering how it could be replayed or not replayed in the Biden administration is that during Obama's first term in the, in the first year of his administration, they had started to work on healthcare. They went into the summer recess where members of Congress went home and they confronted tea party protests, people angry about healthcare, people angry about government spending and broadly this sort of negative narrative developed about Democrats in advance of them getting walloped in the 2010 midterms. The technical term is shellacked. Shellacked, yes. Uh, Luke, as as we've been talking about critical race theory and, and its impact in schools is one of these issues that conservatives are rallying around to try to drive opposition to Democrats generally. And I think their strategy in trying to find something that would impact Joe Biden's popularity Do you think this time around that we are headed for sort of a similar outcome where Democrats have a really bad summer and lose a lot of steam politically in advance of the midterms? Or are there reasons that 2021 and 2022 may be different than 2009 and 2010? I think it's difficult to know just yet since there has been a lot of wins for Joe Biden early in his presidency and much earlier than Barack Obama had his wins. And the policies that Biden pursued were and are remain pretty popular. Like the American Rescue Plan is very popular. The Recovery Act was never as popular and did not have nearly as regularly apparent concrete benefits to regular people and with that in mind it really could play out either way it could be a 2010 scenario but right now i feel like we're far more on a trajectory where republicans are going to go home to their districts and there's going to be a bunch of 
really rile up Trump people, telling them to fight and, you know, get Joe Biden out of office and reinstate Trump. And they're going to be dealing with those crazy people. And the Democrats are going to go home and they're going to deal with some of those people because they they love travel. (laughs) But there will also be a lot of people, you know, saying like, unemployment benefits stopped you know like we need those or we need more help and you know people want the economy to get better and i I just don't see there being this concentrated real fear there was back during the obama administration just because healthcare is such a big contested thing and the fear that the republicans were able to generate in the country as a whole was a lot more real and permeated beyond just their base and it really got into the consciousness of people who were far more apolitical and even some democrats and there's a lot more to answer for in like what are you guys doing explaining this super complicated legislation to me and they hadn't really accomplished anything yet at that point because it took a long time to actually get the affordable care act done and people never really felt anything from the recovery act whereas the rescue plan like people have already gotten checks there's a lot of people with children who are getting more benefits than they did previously and so more yeah more checks (laughs) specifically and like joe biden's approval rating is 59.2 as of today according to the 538 calculator which is actually lower than what obama's was on the same day but obama started to get down into the high 40s you know, in the summer. And I, I, you know, I'll be very curious to see if Biden just stays where he's at. And I kind of think he will, um, because Biden has a superpower of everything he does seems to be reasonable. And I, and as we mentioned at the top of this topic, I think a lot of the reasons why this critical race theory thing popped up is because the Republicans are just throwing everything at the wall they can to find something that will hurt Democrats and Joe Biden's approval ratings, and they just have not been able to find it. They're desperately looking, and they just can't find it. Um, and I, I'll be curious to see how that, that shakes out because I, with the current infrastructure talks, I, I wonder who gets blamed if those don't work out because Biden has set up a very ambitious goal and he's been pushing it very very hard and there is a perception among democrats and the podcasts i listen to that joe biden's doing too much to try to talk to republicans and that he you know none of this matters and there's there's no voters who care about bipartisanship and I, i i think a lot of that's right and i think statistically you look at the numbers of how elections actually get determined i think that's true objectively but i also think people are underestimating the power of the narrative that joe biden is trying really hard to do the right thing even though it's impossible to do it that way (laughs) i think people underestimate that that is a perception of him that is very positive in the minds of some voters who you know, maybe they don't vote for Republic uh, for Democrats, and they would never vote for Joe Biden. But it makes it really hard to hate the guy if he's cooperating with your team and not being a jerk about it. That I mean, that's that's a really good thing for him, I think, politically. And then if he does eventually do something by you know reconciliation, or they don't get anything done, it'll be a lot easier when Joe Biden goes out there and says, hey, I tried, guys, and the Republicans just wouldn't give me anything. I think people will believe him when he says that. And I think that's far more motivating to our base than 
if we were pursuing a different path. And so I, I would put my chips down at the moment, at least, on this being not like 2010. And I think I think Republicans will feel that when they go home and they go to their districts and talk to people. But I, I just don't think the Democrats are going to feel the same thing and feel the heat from their constituents that's like, oh boy, we have gone too far, <laughs> like they did during the Affordable Care Act days. I think I agree with you on the narrative aspects of that. And I, I do think that that is sometimes underappreciated by people who have decided that elections are 100% about turnout and not about persuasion at all. I think the negative case for Democrats, though, is that Republicans actually had to do work to move public opinion pretty significantly against Democrats in 2009 and 2010 because of the goodwill that Obama got right after his election. He was a historic candidate. His victory was historic. Um, And politics, believe it or not, was a little less polarized back then. Um, And so you see Obama had higher approval ratings at this point than Biden does, as you mentioned. Now, I think when you layer in the fact that Republicans still have really significant control over redistricting, they're going to be able to probably gerrymander their way into control of the House um, if everything else stayed equal to it, what it is today. But on top of that, they've they've taken on this project of passing election laws in states across the country, not just Georgia, that make it more difficult to vote. And so that, I think, gives them a better foundation electorally to the point where they don't have to move public opinion as much. And so, you know, we may think that these obsessions with, with critical race theory and, and transgender students in sports, that those things probably won't move a lot of people. I think the reality is they will move some. And the question is whether those sort of culture war issues layered on top of the institutional advantages they're gaining through another uh, cycle where they largely control redistricting and through the changes that they've made to election laws, whether or not those add up to a worse political environment for Democrats, even when broadly public opinion and the narrative suggests that Democrats are probably in a pretty good position, um, especially relative to Democrats in 2010, Democrats in 1994, or Republicans in 2006. Um so I think that's kind of how I how I think about that. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of looking at it. The one thing I I would say is that I think the Republicans are in a tricky position because they actually have a good chance in my mind of learning the wrong lessons because I think the gravity of just how the system of American politics works, how the redistricting works, how voters are spread out, how there's some advantages for conservatives in the Senate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think the risk that they're going to really run here is that they're going to run, unless something changes, as it looks right now, they look like they're going to run on critical race theory, they're going to run on crime, they're going to run on all these all these Trump issues and they're talk about them in the way that Trump did. And, you know, history would suggest that they'll win the House doing that. But I don't think it's going to be because those were effective messages. I think it will be because, considering, and I'm making an assumption here that this is not like some giant blowout victory for them, that they just, they do manage to pick up 
both houses, that house and singing, or they pick up one of them. And they're going to just like really think, oh, this is the message that's going to work for us forever. And I just don't think it is. I think it'll be, if they win, it'll be because of those just mechanical things about how the system works. And it'll be uh, based on turnout, just the typical you know, back and forth of politics of whoever's in the White House, their party doesn't turn out as much and the party out of power does. And I, I think that'll hurt them in the future because if they try to run against Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is in 2024 and the economy is good and things are turning around, I just don't think that's going to be a very successful way of d- doing it. And and so I think that's the big risk they've run even if they're successful. And so, well, guys, you know, the point's, I've been making, I think, in this whole topic is just the fact that I think they, I think this messaging is not going to be as effective as they think it is. And the messaging Democrats is on has long, more long-term viability and strength. And so that I think will be interesting to watch as we go forward. All right, Luke, we got kind of national on that. Let's come back local. Let's get really hyper local and talk about the city of Atlanta because Luke... Kasim Reed is back. It's go. Atlanta, it's time to go. Let's go. Atlanta, we're getting ready to be 6 0. Let's go. Atlanta, let's go. Atlanta, tell LA, tell New York, tell Charlotte, tell Dallas, tell Chicago, and definitely tell Miami. I'm back. Luke, Kasim Reed is back. I don't know why Miami cares so much, but Kasim Reed announced at his birthday party there, which also doubled as a fundraiser, that he was running again for mayor of Atlanta. He's going to join this race now that current Atlanta mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has announced that she is not going to run for re-election. Uh, people who closely watch Atlanta politics may remember that Reed, who was term limited out of his job, I think he would have run for it again if he had the chance, Uh endorsed Mayor Bottoms to be his successor. And now after just a single term from Mayor Bottoms, Reed is going to try to get that job back. Luke, we don't spend a lot of time talking about Atlanta. And I do feel like Atlanta politics itself is, you know, it has its own issues, has its own players. Um, I'm not sure that we're always the best voices that understand that. But also Atlanta is our capital city. Um, and Mayor Reed, as we talk a lot about state politics here, Mayor Reed had this well-known, uh, very productive relationship with former Republican Governor Nathan Deal, was Governor Deal's uh, conduit to a Democratic White House. What do you think about Mayor Reed trying to get his old job back? Well, I now understand why Keisha Lance Bottoms is not running for a second term. <laughs> I have a feeling that there's probably some conversations that were had. Uh, and obviously, I'm making a lot of assumptions, but it, it does... It makes sense, uh, and I, I would I would never want to run <laughs> against Kasim Reed because uh, he is uh, a very effective campaigner and he definitely understands politics and uh, is is a force to be reckoned with in the city of Atlanta for for sure uh, in both in good and bad ways and is uh, controversial uh, for uh, a lot of reasons. But I, I think this will be an interesting race to watch. And I, I would definitely put my money on him being successful in this comeback bid just because of the fact that he was a fairly successful mayor, despite, you know, controversies. I, uh, before we talked, looked up a poll from the end of his term in 
2017. I mean, he left office with a 58% approval rating and only a 29% disapproval rating. And so, I mean, those are pretty good numbers uh, in, in, in these days, I think. And so I, I, I think it will be very hard to to beat former Mayor Reag. And I, I you know, wouldn't say he's a shoe-in or anything, but I think he really is in a good position because of the, the issues that the city is currently dealing with. I think going back to someone that folks know and who led the city over a pretty good time is a viable race. And especially because, to, to hit on your your comment about Miami, I think the thing that people would have confidence in Reed doing is pushing the city forward really aggressively or at least trying to and so miami is one of those places where a lot of uh the tech industry has been moving to it's a growing city a you know uh really hot place for a lot of people to move to uh and i i think reeg is quite clearly saying his campaign up around the idea of making atlanta one of those competitive cities where everyone is dying to move to and miami is probably the chief competition in the region for that at the moment and and so i I think that would be an interesting race for him and a good a a strong message i sound like i've been i'm endorsing kasim reed i'm not (laughs) i just (laughs) yeah just like it makes sense to me i guess is what i'm saying well, you you alluded to this a little bit, Luke. So some of the things that Kasim Reed would have to overcome to get his job back is he left office pretty popular, but he had a lot of challenges, including this federal corruption investigation that, as far as I know, never targeted him personally, but did ensnare his administration. And I believe it was a top procurement officer in his administration that was actually convicted as a part of that corruption investigation. And there was also a lot of scrutiny over the uh, lavish bonuses and pay raises that he gave to city employees near the end of his term and a lot of scrutiny on the ways in which he used the city credit card. Um, If I remember correctly, he paid back several thousand dollars uh, that he spent on that card to the city after some reporting by uh, Channel 2 and the AJC. Um, Though I think, you know, I think it's natural to ask whether or not those things would impact him politically at the same time, I think Atlanta, at least as an outside observer, seems to be in a very different place with its politics where violent crime and particularly homicides is going to dominate the political conversation in Atlanta between now and the election, which to keep in mind for listeners is this November, it's an off-year election. Um, so we don't have a long time until then, actually. And I think the one asset that Mayor Reed has in this comeback bid is that whether through his policies or just through the time that he served, crime in Atlanta was much lower and was on um, the middle or towards the end of this really long-term trend of declining. And now when he's trying to get his job back, Atlanta seems to be in this violent crime wave that, um, you know, I think previously there was a little sensitivity around discussing crime in cities and and what you were really saying when you were saying, oh, I don't want to be in the city because it has a lot of crime. I think now some of the randomness of some of the acts of violence that have happened, um, I think has caused people to reconsider the severity of what has gone on and demanded that that city leaders come up with 
solutions. Luke, an interesting frame for his candidacy that I saw meeting this moment around this conversation on crime is that Kasim Reed could actually have some appeal to Republican voters in Atlanta. Um, and two top aides to former Governor Deal were at his launch party the other night. What do you think that says about how he might shape his message and shape his campaign, a campaign that's going to be a really quick one between now and November? I think the biggest thing that Kasim Reed has going for him is the four years since he left uh, and that, you know, things have been crazy and chaotic in the world. And I think the nostalgia factor of, hey, wasn't Atlanta great back in, you know, 2014 and 15? And wasn't everything going swell and crime wasn't bad? And, you know, the city was growing and there weren't all of you know this just disharmony and i was able to get along with our you know republican governor and our democratic white house and we got a bunch of stuff done and like i just think i just think that sort of nostalgia return to normalcy <laughs> joe biden-esque message would be a powerful one for him and i mean just consider and, and this is really what i was trying to say in the first half, it's just just the fact that he was mayor. People know like what Kasim Reed as mayor is like, and there are just all of these problems in Atlanta. I, I feel like that's just like a, a good political formula in any situation. You know, you have a successful politician who is pretty good at running for office, running in a time where things are very crazy. I just feel like that would be a good recipe for people to vote for the sure thing and vote for the you know the devil you know. President Biden can attest to that. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, that 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 is my fundamental assumption of this race and why uh, I think he would have such a good chance. And if I'm wrong, I really look forward to all the calls from my friends from Atlanta of why I'm dumb <laughs> and I don't know what's happening there because uh, that does happen from time to time. But, I mean, that's just my assumption. Is is And I, I think, to your point about the Republican voters— like, is Kasim Reed their first choice? Eh, probably not. But they do know him, and they know what he's like, and they, you know, I think, compared to most of the other choices of who's in the race, I, I definitely could see him getting a lot of those voters' votes because of just the fact that they know what he is like as mayor, and they know they don't like what's going on now. <laughs> and I think that would be a pretty strong selling point for him. Now, in some ways, at least in, in my own head, I've kind of segmented off Atlanta politics as kind of its own thing. But the issue of crime in the state's capital city at this time where Democrats are beginning to be more competitive statewide, I mean, they won three statewide elections between the Senate runoffs and, and Biden's victory here, I think it it raises the question of whether Democrats broadly in this state need to take seriously and have concrete solutions and proposals to addressing violent crime, addressing homicides in Atlanta and in other cities across the state. I mean, I think last year when we were talking about this, um, you know, particularly earlier in last year when the the crime wave that I, I think we will look back on this and say that COVID and the economic upheaval was a big 
contributor to what has gone on in Atlanta and in other cities across Georgia and across the country. But earlier in this process, when when crime was much lower, Kelly Leffler tried to run this like Republican base driven strategy of Democrats want to defund the police. Um, she's the only one and Republicans are the only ones that'll stand with police officers. And I think in some ways that fell flat because it didn't call back to people's real experience. And I think when you think about this politically, this, I think, opens a door for some of those criticisms to be more relevant to people, to average voters. Um, And I think in some ways there is some sensitivity to, among Democrats, to discussing crime. And you certainly don't want to, you certainly want to, as a progressive, address the issue of crime in a way that looks for solutions that will benefit people and doesn't necessarily assume that there is some segment of the population that is just uh, is just going to participate in criminal activity um, and that that's just the way it is. I mean, that's the, a lot of the Republican messaging is built, I think, foundationally around that idea. And Democrats certainly don't want to fall into that trap. And there's a lot of systemic policy issues, economic and the ways in which people meet their basic needs that um, that contribute to crime in Atlanta and in other cities. Luke, how do you think Democrats and progressives need to approach the issue of crime in a way that I think recognizes people's fears and concerns, um, but proposes ideas that I think are productive um, and will get us to a place where government acts and the result is that crime is lower and, and public safety is in a better situation. To start first, why this didn't work for Republicans, because I think it's very connected to why it probably would work for someone like Kasim Reed, is that when the Republicans talk about crime, it is usually in the context of fear-mongering and demagoguery and not in the, here are the concrete steps I'm going to take to fix crime. <laughs> I mean, sometimes they will, you know, do that. But most of the time, that's that's not the context in which they're talking about crime. Whereas Kasim Reed, like, he will talk about crime in that way. And he'll be like, here, here are the programs and the investments I want to make to, uh, you know, stop crime, whether it's, you know, investing more into the police force or into community programs. And I think that approach... Uh, will probably be more successful for him in the current electorate because I I, I mean maybe I'll be proven wrong <laughs> and uh, Kasim Reed will you know run a, a campaign where he's demagoguing <laughs> uh, you know crime and uh, criminals and you know talking about gang violence all the time and how we need to crack down on the gangs and that be the only thing that he says because I mean it's like nobody likes gang violence I don't even think gang members like gang violence so I think everyone wants to get it to go down, but you know the, the the important part that I think a politician like Reed usually would engage in is the the follow up of like these are the things we're going to do besides just you know pouring more money into prosecution, pushing for tougher gang laws and uh, things like that. And so, well, I guess part I, of my question though, Luke, too, is that 
I have concerns that the fear mongering actually would be more effective this time around, given the overall environment. Maybe you don't believe every fear mongering thing that Kelly Leffler said on the campaign trail last time, but what you're reading in the paper, what you're hearing about people's experience, if Democrats aren't offering a robust response and they're just trying to wave it away, that I think opens the door for even the fear mongering to shape politics more than it has in the past few years. I think that's true. And it's one of those things that if that is the route that Reed takes, I would think it would still end up looking differently than how it looked with Kelly Loeffler, just because he's a very different messenger in both like his style and approach of uh, talking about issues, but also his lived experience and, you know, the people that he is focused on helping are very different than the people Loeffler and Purdue and other Republicans are usually focused on. And so I think that just makes the approach to that message very, very different. Because even if Kasim Reig decided to go the full, or any candidate, frankly, decided to go the full, you know, let's demagogue the crime issue in Atlanta to win the mayor's race, like to, to win all the Republicans, like, there aren't enough Republicans in Atlanta to win. Uh, so that that would be a strange strategy in my mind if that, that was the only approach that he took. I, I, I won't be surprised if it's part of it, but I don't think it will be the main, main thrust of his campaign. Well, and I do want to think, too, beyond just this specific race with, with Mayor Reed. Um, I think Stacey Abrams would much prefer to challenge Brian Kemp in an environment where Atlanta is not considered to be in a substantial crime wave. And so I think that's why I've tried to broaden this out here to Democrats broadly into the way that progressives approach how they discuss the issue of crime and trying not to wave it away, but to acknowledge it and offer productive things instead of fear mongering things. Um, Because I think that what Governor Kemp will likely try to do in the lead up to his campaign is leverage the issue of crime in Atlanta to say, this is Democrats fault. This is the Democrats in Atlanta's fault. And if you elect Stacey Abrams, it's going to be the Democrats in Georgia's fault because it because the rest of Georgia is going to be just like Atlanta. And I think when that message was stood up against relatively low crime rates, it wasn't effective because it didn't match people's real experiences, but I think it could be this time around. And so it's a, to me, it's more of a caution flag for Democrats generally, Ezra Klein had a podcast recently where he interviewed a, a researcher who's been researching criminal justice issues. And he had this same basic question that like for progressives across the country, when people look on TV and see what they're seeing going on in cities, do progressives have any kind of answer at all? And I think there are a lot of progressives who would who would prefer not to engage on the issue I mean, that I think is what gives me pause. Yeah. And I think not engaging on the issue is a mistake. And from what I've seen of most of the folks running from in Atlanta, they are at least engaging on the issue and the point that they bring it up. And I think the fact that there won't be an incumbent in this race will make that conversation a lot more interesting uh, because I, I think 
in, in some ways that will improve the the crime discussion because there won't just be a lot of finger pointing and you know at Keisha Lance Boggoms and saying why haven't you fixed crime? Uh, so I I think that is one positive side effect of her not running again and i i mean i would be surprised just based off of what i remember from being you know in athens but just you know hearing a lot about lana and hearing a lot of what kasim reed was saying when he was mayor i would be surprised if he doesn't talk about it in a pretty head-on blunt way because that tended to be his political style of just you know taking controversial issues head-on at least how he talked about them and so uh, it, it will be interesting to see how he approaches it because I feel like he does have a lot of options on on the table. Um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of policy tools at the city's disposal. I think if you've been paying attention to the conversation among progressive activists and racial justice activists that would prefer less spending on armed police services and more spending, more investments in nonviolent services, people showing up to calls who aren't armed, uh, people who are participating in like violence intervention, trying to stop violence from escalating or stop arguments from escalating. You know, there are, there are a lot of policy tools there that, that probably haven't gotten the funding and the investment that they deserve. But at least for now, when you look at the response from Mayor Bottoms and what I would imagine the response from a Mayor Reed would be is that According to the AJC, this city of Atlanta is short 400 police officers. They got the biggest increase of any city agency in their budget this during this last budget that just passed the city council. And um, the idea is to use some of that funding to hire additional officers and improve police presence. I think this is why this is a sort of a tough issue in progressive circles, because there are some schools of thought that say that you should invest more in policing to make it better and reduce crime. And then there are progressive activists who want an alternative. And within a, a democratic primary, at the city level, you may be dealing with a, a, a group of voters that is more open to investments in policing and, and making policing more robust if it, as many will argue, if it reduces crime when you step out into the state level, uh, into democratic primaries, there progressive activists may, you know, may bring a different perspective, one that is, I think, less friendly to police. So it's it's an interesting issue among the politics of the Democratic Party for for people to work out. Um, but it has tremendous policy stakes, and it's evident when you read the AJC recently that the increase in homicides is having tragic consequences on families who are losing loved ones. Um, and it's something that city leaders need to step up and act on. All right. Well, I think we are going to wrap it up there for today. Um, we will be back again soon. It, it'll probably be in the next couple of weeks or so, uh, a little bit slower news environment during the summer, but we are ramping up towards redistricting getting to the point where the state legislature uh, and the redistricting committee should have the information they need to begin drawing districts, drawing maps, and presenting those to the public. So as that begins to happen, you'll hear from us. Um, and if anything, any other breaking news happens, you'll hear from us. But for now, we are going to let you go. Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Oh, happy to be here. Anything to uh, get me away from bar prep. <laughs> 
Well, good luck with bar prep and everybody else. Stay safe out there, y'all. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.